Well, before we get into our topic for today, I wanted to announce to you what we're talking about starting next week. Yeah, next week, we're starting a brand new series, very different from the one that we've currently been in, but we're going to be tackling some confusing Bible passages. And you know what uh, I'm excited about? I am inviting you to help supply the passages that confuse you. Um, or that you'd like to be able to better understand to help share with your friends or your family. Now, I can't promise you that I'll get to all of them, but please do submit them. If, if you can think of a verse that you've really wanted to know more about, I don't know that I'll know the answer, but I'll, I'll at least study on it, see if we can find a good answer, and we may say, that's a good question. I don't know. And I don't know is a very acceptable answer. It's okay. You know, I was at the school this last week, and I was talking about when you put a puzzle together, you have a lot of puzzle pieces, and you pick one up, and you think, oh, I know where this goes. Oh, no, I don't know where this goes. But you don't throw away the whole puzzle just because you don't know how this piece fits. You set it aside until it becomes clear. So if you're more of a texting type person, here's the number. Just text the verse to this number. That's our generic texting number. You've probably received a phone call from me, an automated version of me. Um, text us to that number. You can write it down because I'm going to take it off the screen in a moment. Or if you're more of a paper person, just write it on a piece of paper and give it to me as you leave today or next week. And if you're not quite sure what the verse is, but you kind of know what it talks about, you can write that down and we'll try and find the verse because I know how it is with me. I often have to turn to Google to figure out where a verse is. and So it's going to be a fun series. I hope you will enjoy uh, the process together. And like I say, I can't guarantee we'll get to your verse, but we'll try. And we may do multiple verses um, in a message, depending on how things go. So having said that, we open up to the book of Micah, because we need to first finish off uh, our current sermon series. And it's kind of sad because Micah has, has had some unexpected blessings for us. And I hope that you've been, been blessed as we've been studying and getting some, some deeper insights. Again, we can't cover everything. There just isn't time or, or patience to get through all of it. But we're hitting a lot of the high points and a lot of the, the main details. But before we get into chapter 7, let's just think back to where we've been. Some of the big themes in the book of Micah. We've seen a God who loves his people with his whole heart. And when his people have gone into idolatry and murder and extortion and bribery and lack of justice, it hurts the eternally loving heart of God. And so through the prophet Micah, we have heard these oracles of an aching heart and a God saying, if this is the way you continue going, bad things are going to happen. But we've also seen glimmers of hope, the promise of the Messiah born in Bethlehem, the one who can heal them and forgive them for their waywardness, promised in the book of Micah. We've seen a strong emphasis on justice. Last week, 
we read those powerful words and better understood the context of love mercy. Do justly and walk humbly with your God. It must have been a tough job to be a prophet because for most of your career, you felt like a failure. Now, we did see week one, I, I gave you the preview to chapter three, where in week one, we, we learned that the words of Micah were actually heeded to some degree. And in the days of Hezekiah, there was a revival that was partly attributed to the ministry of Micah. And people did turn their hearts back to God. Not the majority, but definitely a strong group of people did. But it must have been very difficult. And so as we get into chapter 1, or chapter 7, verse 1, we see that Micah is pouring out his grief, pouring out his sorrow over the sinful condition of his people. I mean, if you had to have the job of trying to get people to turn back to God and they were never doing it, for the most part, ignoring and scoffing at your words, it would be very depressing. And Micah pours out his sorrow. Chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There's no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit of which my soul desires. He's, he compared himself to somebody who was so excited to get some of that summer ripened fruit. And they say that the first figs were the sweetest, the best tasting figs. Or going to the vineyard to get some grapes that he could glean and eat and there was nothing. And this is a parable. This is symbolic of God looking to his people, expecting them to bring forth fruit of righteousness and turning back to him and finding nothing. Look at that, verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood, and every man hunts his brother with a net. Can you get the sense of the disappointment that God felt? Instead of seeing righteousness, he's seeing people that are tearing each other apart. People that are hurting one another through all sorts of means. And that word for faithful man or upright or godly, it's the word hasid, which is related to the word hesed. Hesed is the word often translated as mercy or steadfast love. So Micah chapter 6, verse 8, love, mercy, love, hesed. God's looking down and he's seeing there are no hasid, there are no people who are loving, merciful people, or in this case, one who is um, steadfast in his covenant love to God. They've perished. Nobody is upright. It reminds you of the words of Romans chapter 3, where Paul is, is surveying humanity's morality. Gentiles, chapter 1, they're bad. God's chosen people, they've fallen away also. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember we said in week 1 that Micah and Isaiah and Amos, they all served about the same time. They were alive at the same time. They ministered at the same time. And so I want to share something from Isaiah 
chapter 5, verse 7 on the screen here. Here is a similar statement. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Another parable. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw what? Bloodshed. Thanks, Clary. For righteousness, but he heard cries of what? Distress. God was looking for something good, and he didn't find what he wanted. It's like the parable that Jesus acted out where there was the the fig tree that had the leaves, and it looked like it was going to have those first figs, the, the extra good ones, and it had nothing. Symbol of God's people. So Micah is experiencing the pain that God was experiencing And then we find in verse 3 that the people are ambidextrous. They are good with both hands, but not for good things. Verse 3, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. They're skilled in evil in both hands. Taking bribes with both hands. Stabbing in the back, both hands, good at it. Phil and I like to play pickleball. I saw somebody, we were playing uh, at the park, and they hit the ball with the other hand. They switched paddles. I was like, wow, you're ambidextrous. They said, no, I just can't, I don't have a backhand shot. So they switch hands, so it's always their forehand with their paddle. Here the people were skilled, equally skilled, but in doing evil with both hands. Last week I mentioned a song by John Foreman that dealt with a passage we referenced. Again, John Foreman wrote a song called Equally Skilled. If you like music, this is a very powerful scripture song that talks about how the condition of the people was, the condition in that day, but yet God's love and his skill with both of his hands to save us. It says in verse 3, the prince is asking for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and a great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar, like a thorn bush. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and punishment comes, and now shall be their perplexity. And Micah, as we have talked about, he's good with plays on words, and so the word for thorn hedge is mesuka, and the word for Perplexity is mabuka. So he's, he's using similar sounding words to catch the attention of his listeners, of his readers. Verse 4, do not trust in a friend. The conditions were so bad, he's saying, don't trust in a friend. And interestingly enough, the word for trust is from the same word, amen, amen, amun, that we use in church, amen. And so in Hebrew, it originally had connotations that involved trust. Uh, So if you agreed with a statement, I guess you would say, well, that's a trustworthy statement. Or, amen, God is trustworthy. But here Micah is saying, don't trust in a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth. Be careful what you say. From her who lies in your bosom. You can't even trust your spouse, your wife, he's saying. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus actually quoted this in Luke 12. 
in the Christian era, he said the gospel would have this effect so that people wouldn't, uh, you know, it would be like a sword in some households. And in these last days, it would be like that in, in households. A man's enemies are the men of his own household, Micah says. So you get the frustration and the pain that he's going through. He's surveyed the people after all he's said, after all these years, and he can't find anybody, or hardly anyone. Perhaps these are the words that not only Micah felt, but perhaps a small remnant of those who were faithful within Israel. And then we get to verse 7. He says, therefore, and previously in the book of Micah, the word therefore often was a signal of doom. But check out how he uses it now. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He's saying, even though things are totally messed up, even though people are murdering, lying, cheating, stealing, bribing, even though people are turning their backs on their family members, I can't even trust my own wife. Therefore, I'm going to trust in God. I am going to stay true to God even if everybody else falls away. Like Elijah saying, oh God, I'm the only one. God said, well, actually, there's, there's some others. Which was good news and pleasant for his ears. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I don't know what your home situation is like, your family, your friend's situation. It may be that you're the only one serving the Lord in your household. But keep on trusting and serving the Lord. Keep on telling God your troubles. He knows them already. They aren't too much for him to hear. Keep on, like Isaiah, like Amos, like Micah in that day. Therefore, we can look to the Lord. And then verse 8. A transition now. Now we, we go from more of Micah to a larger corporate body. It seems to be the words based on the syntax and grammar, the words of Jerusalem. But we know that Jerusalem itself was not walking in the ways of the Lord. So this may be perhaps more of an idealized version of Jerusalem, or a hopeful version in my mind. Verse 8, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. God had promised, yeah, the captivity is going to happen. 586, Babylonian captivity happened. But Jerusalem now is saying, hey, don't rejoice. Uh, Edom, don't rejoice, Nineveh. Don't rejoice, my enemy over me, because I will fall. When I fall, I will arise. I know what's going to happen to me, but I'm going to come back up. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. That's a pretty powerful statement here. Recognizing I've messed up. I am guilty. There are consequences for my behavior. But I'm going to bear it. I'm going to accept it. I recognize that God is sovereign. God is just. But the next phrase also reminds us that the that the speaker here recognized that God was also merciful. Because I've sinned against him, until he pleads my case. 
and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I will see his righteousness. Very interesting. Accepting, submitting to the punishment of God, the correction of God. And remember, all of God's correction is with the goal until the very end, um, except for these you know, final judgments. But God's correction is trying to correct us, trying to get us to turn back to him, trying to save us. And some of us have a, like a harder head than others, and so it takes more drastic measures. I was a pretty compliant kid. If, my, if I knew my parents were disappointed in me, Boy, that, that hurt me. That was enough. I didn't need many spankings growing up um, just because of my personality. Um, others, they respond to different stimuli, shall we say. And God wants to work with the, the lowest level of correction. That's why he sends prophets first. Hey, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. If you're not going to listen, year after year after year after year, okay, well, Nebuchadnezzar, I will permit you to come in here. And now we'll see if the people will turn from their ways. And so they say, we will submit. Don't mock me, the, the, the nations who had been um, around them. Don't mock me because I'm going to rise back up again. I'm going to arise again. And he's going to actually take my defense. Again, we see this courtroom language. He is going to execute justice for me. He's going to plead my case for me. Isn't this amazing? The very one who said, you're guilty, this is what's coming, now has said, I'm going to help defend you. I'm going to help you. You're going to move forward. And he's, I'm going to bring you to the light, to the righteousness. Verse 10, then she who is my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. The enemies who taunted and mocked and, and had all these insults to hurl at the people of God, now is the one who is being trampled down. You know, think about those who were mocking Jesus on the cross. If you're, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just come on down off that cross? You think you're so powerful, Jesus? You did all these miracles? Well, work one now for yourself. Well, one day, Revelation tells us, those eyes in particular will see Jesus coming in power in the glory of heaven when he returns to this earth. It will be important for them to see and to fully understand in that day Verse 11, in that day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree will go far and wide, in that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities and the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and, as, and for the fruit of her deeds. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be thriving in this prophetic picture. The, the walls, the boundaries are going to be expanding again. And we did see Nehemiah came back and helped build up those walls again. And while they may have fallen short of their potential, nevertheless, God was wanting to do this through them. 
And the land, that's in verse 13, being desolate is in reference to the land of the enemies and so forth. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. Again, the shepherd motif, the theme of a shepherd comes in. We saw it in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. We just can't not see Jesus as our shepherd here as we're reading. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in the woodland, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. These are references to very fertile places, places where there was good pasture, places that were conquered first when, when they entered into the promised land. But as they continued sinning and going down as a nation, they lost these areas. Lead us back. Expand our boundaries, our borders. Lead us back, Messiah, to these places. Verse 15, As in the days of old, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see. And we get another play on words through here. Ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be sick. The enemies looking at, whoa, what's going on? This nation that we oppressed, now they're raising up. God, remember, sees us as we can be, not necessarily as we are presently. They shall see the nations, verse 16, and be ashamed of all their might. Put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth and they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. You know, as God does his work in this world, now and particularly in the future, for those who have spent time with the shepherd, who have submitted to the Messiah, when they see God returning in the clouds of glory, it will be a wonderful sight. But for those who have rejected and rebelled when they see him, they'll want to go back into the holes of the ground like a snake. What does Revelation say? They're calling the rocks to fall down on them. Because God, unveiled in all his glory, is terrifying for somebody who hasn't opened up their heart to experience the love of our amazing God. And then verse 18, the last few verses here. My favorite verses of the whole book. Who is a God like you? Now this is very interesting. Micah's name, or Micah Micaiah, same name, means who is like God. Micah snuck his name in here, but not unnecessarily. Who is a God like you? I'm looking forward to meeting Micah. I think he's a clever guy. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. He spent most of the book talking about how sinful the people are and how messed up they are because he's trying to get them through the Holy Spirit to come back to God. But he can't conclude without talking about how forgiving and loving and merciful God is. 
Now, by the way, had Jesus come down and lived and died yet at this point? No. So the people who think, oh, Jesus is the merciful one, and then God the Father, he's the stern one, that's totally false. And it's a misunderstanding of the nature of God himself. Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you don't know me? After Philip said, show me the Father. Who is a God like you? Micah knew it. We have a merciful God who pardons iniquity. Now, what's very interesting here, the word pardoning is the Hebrew word nasah. This word for pardon is used in particular in Isaiah 53, verse 12, where Jesus, as the suffering servant prophesied by by Isaiah, would bear the transgression of his people. The word iniquity is also used a couple of times in Isaiah 53. Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression. That word is used in Isaiah 53 twice of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The word for delight there is used in Isaiah 53. Speaking about how it pleased God to bruise Jesus. Not in the sense that he derived pleasure from it, but it pleased him in the sense that through the suffering of Christ, we could be saved. And so there's this very strong linguistic connection between this verse and Isaiah 53. In fact, this passage, these these final three verses of the book are are used even today by Orthodox Jews uh, and perhaps others, and they read it on the Day of Atonement along with the book of Jonah. And then they go to a stream where there's running water and they empty out their pockets, symbolically getting rid of all of their sin, emptying it out, because they recognize, even though our Orthodox Jew friends have not accepted the Messiah. They recognize that our God is a merciful God, a forgiving God who doesn't want to hold on to our sins. He wants to get rid of them, just as one would get rid of something in a moving stream. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. We talked about this last week. Love mercy. That God, that's impossible. God says, is it? I do it, and I want to help you do it too. So when you pray, when you mess up, when you sin big time, and you get down on your knees or just in your mind, and you talk to God, you don't have to feel like God is really angry at you and that you have to like shield yourself from him and and that he's going to get mad that you asked for forgiveness for that sin again that you just asked for yesterday. Because Micah, who knew the Lord, knew that God delights in giving mercy. He doesn't just tolerate it. He doesn't just put up with it. Oh, what is it you want? Ah, again? Okay, go ahead. Do better next time. God gets excited in his heart when he sees us coming to him for mercy because it means that we still want that relationship with him. 
We want that covenant relationship with Him. Verse 19, He will again have compassion on us. Again means He's already needed to be compassionate previously. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. There's actually three different words for sin used in this passage and four different Hebrew words for forgive. It's like Micah is just trying to to do, communicate in as many ways as he can. God's going to forgive you. He's going to pass over your sins. He's going to subdue them. He's going to wash them away. He, he's trying to make it clear how great our God is. And so he starts off in verse 18. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? Subduing our iniquities. And it has the imagery of a warrior who would subdue his foe and would, would stomp on him, uh, would uh, um, conquer him, in effect, much like David conquered Goliath. And it says he will cast all our sins. Now, maybe your Bible says only a few of the sins. Only the sins that are really small. Is that what yours says? Phil, does yours say that? says all, even in your Bible, even in my Bible. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And of course, this is poetic language. When they went down in the Mariana Trench, they did not look out the window and say, whoa, that is nasty. All this sin floating around down here. God removes our sins. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which your fathers have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The God who was merciful in Abraham's day is the same God who wants to have mercy on me and you today. Who is like our God? I tell you what, if our God wasn't just, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to um, love him the way you do. A God who, who doesn't have a sense of justice, that's not a, a God that we can love and embrace with our whole heart. And a God who's also not merciful would not be a God that we would want to embrace with our whole heart. But our God is a perfect blend of all these things and more. Who is like our God? I want to conclude today with the words of the hymn composer, Frederick Faber. He wrote a hymn called, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. I'll just read two stanzas for you. He says, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. The more I get to know my God and your God, whether you're reading in the New Testament or you're reading in the Old Testament, I am convinced he is most wonderfully kind. So what can keep you? 
from God? Just your choice. There's no barrier that he has erected. There's no barrier there. He, he smashed them all down. Why not in your heart right now come to him again today? A number of you have done this recently, but for some of you it's been a while since you have talked to God and reaffirmed that desire to be with God, to follow him, to choose him. Perhaps some of you have never made that choice. What a fitting time as we close out this book, thinking about how merciful our God is, how loving he is, how wonderfully kind he is, to just open up your heart today and say, God, I am so thankful that you love me. I'm so thankful you've already forgiven me. I'm so thankful that you have a place for me, a mansion with my name on it. And God, I want to follow you. I want to grow with you. And I want to see you joyfully when you return. Is that your desire this morning, friends? Amen. That's my desire. Friends at home, is that your desire? Some of you, this, this will mean some choices that you need to make. Some follow-up steps. As you say, yes, God, come into my life, God's going to say, awesome, I've been waiting for this moment. And I have some, some ideas for you on how your life can be even better. Don't say no to that. Just say yes. Let's pray. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of your heritage. You don't hold on to your anger forever, but you delight in mercy. You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Father, you've done a lot of casting for me in my life. I need your help, Lord, day by day. I want your help. I want to be closer to you. I want you to fill more of the rooms of, of the house of my heart. I want you to cast out the darkness, the evil, the rebellious attitude in my heart. And I believe that's the prayer of my friends as well. Show us, Lord, how we can follow you more faithfully, how we can live out a life of mercy and justice and walking humbly with you. Show us how to make that practical. And give us that same joy that Micah had as we think about how good you are and how wonderful it will be to see you face to face. And may that day come soon. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Let everybody say, Amen. Amen. Happy Sabbath. God bless you. And we'll see you soon.